Good morning. We have two readings this morning, and our first is from Genesis. And if you'd like to follow in the Church Bibles, you will find it on page three. We're reading uh, from chapter one, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now we move to a reading from Psalm 139. And again, if you'd like to follow it, you'll find it in page, on page 628 in the Church Bibles. Page 628, and reading Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even in the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name, misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? 
I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Roger. Let's start, as usual, by praying. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand our nature and your will for us, and through this, to follow Jesus better. Amen. Uh, Do you ever get confused when you hear people talking about identity or when you read about it? Do you ever feel that you're not understanding something? Uh, I know I do. That's why I ask. Uh, And it used to worry me. I used to worry that I was missing something. But I've come to realize that that there are two main reasons why uh, I had that confusion. Uh, uh, The first is this. Those who speak and write about this generally have a worldview which is radically different from the Bible's worldview. They don't start in the same place. They may be assuming things or adopting, consciously or unconsciously, a philosophical position that is fundamentally different from that of the Bible. And then secondly, not everyone who speaks or writes on this subject is saying the same thing. There is no one modern secular view of identity. People say things that contradict what other people are saying. And that contradiction begins with the very word identity itself. I suspect if you hear the word identity, many of you will think about the basic objective facts about a person or thing. But that's not how the word is frequently used today. It's normally used to mean something like the things that someone thinks or believes or feels or desires about themselves. In other words, it's all about self-perception or volition. And that's why you hear people saying things like, you can't deny my identity. Now, uh, for some people, uh, that subjective view of identity is all that can be said on the subject. But understandably, many other people want to say something objective about themselves, And thus, you'll hear things like this from perhaps someone who is biologically male, but who says, I don't just feel like a woman, I don't just want to be a woman, I am a woman. And that divergence of approach manifests itself in all sorts of ways in the secular debate. For example, some argue that being trans is an objective thing. If you don't suffer from gender dysphoria, then you are not trans. But others hotly deny that. 
They say that being trans is a matter of choice. You are trans if you self-identify as such. And, and there are other fundamental disagreements in the secular debate. For example, a number of feminists, including some lesbian groups, suggest uh, that transgender advocates are smuggling gender stereotypes in through the back door. Uh, they ask what it means for somebody who is biologically male to be described as a woman. What, 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 what does it mean? And they suggest that people who say that type of thing are using stereotypes. And incidentally, I think they're right. Uh, and if you, if you doubt that, uh, I suggest that you try to define woman without using the word woman, which would be circular, and without referring to biological characteristics. I think you'll find you soon slip into stereotypes. But in any event, the key point to remember is that we should not imagine that there is one coherent modern secular philosophy of identity out there. There isn't. Uh, even more importantly, we should not imagine that this debate is all about gender. It isn't. It goes to the root of what we are as human beings. It's as fundamental as that, and it thus impacts us all. Uh, it, it, that also explains, though, why it's very sensitive and why we need to be gentle with one another as we discuss it. So, what does the Bible say about these things? Well, as I've already said, uh, it starts in a completely different position from the secular debate you won't find the word identity in the Bible. Indeed, it doesn't start with us at all. It starts with God. In the beginning, God begins Genesis, and indeed the whole Bible. God is the fundamental reality. And the first thing we're told about God is that he created all other things that exist. And that, of course, includes us. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that, but I want to focus on just four things. And the first is this. We are creatures created by God as the pinnacle of his creation. We're God's creatures, his workmanship. But Genesis doesn't simply say that we're creatures like any other creatures. It says we're made in the image of God. Theologians have, of course, argued for 3,000 years about precisely what that means, but the key point is that we're being told that we, in some unique way, reflect the very nature of God. We are the pinnacle of his creation. And that doesn't just apply to humanity in general. It applies to each one of us in particular. We heard that in our second reading. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Isaiah put it like this. We are the clay. You, Lord, are the potter. We are the work of your hands. We are each uniquely made in the image of God. And that applies to everyone without exception, male or female. Uh, Whether we acknowledge God or not, whatever we do or don't do, whatever we think or feel or desire about ourselves. In other words, the fundamental things about us are an unchangeable objective reality. That's point one. But point point two, we are created in two integrated parts, one material and one immaterial. When Genesis says that we're created in the image of God, it's not talking about simply our immaterial souls. No, it's talking about us as physical beings with an immaterial part to us. That's clear from our reading today, but take this as well from Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. This is hugely important. Many people, including I think many Christians, imagine that the real us is our immaterial souls or spirits or minds and that that in some way inhabits our bodies rather like a hermit crab inhabits a shell. But I can't stress too strongly That's not what the Bible says. That is, in fact, a form of Platonism. It is not Christianity. God places huge value on our bodies. For for example, when the Bible is talking about our redeemed state, it doesn't simply say, your soul is united with Christ. It says your body is united with Christ. And the Apostle Paul uses that as the justification for saying that we should honour God with our bodies. And then think about Christ. He was raised bodily from the dead. And we are told eagerly to await the redemption of our bodies. Of course, in death, Our souls are separated from our bodies, but the Bible indicates that we are then incomplete pending the resurrection of the body. So we should not talk about our bodies as if they are not part of us. They are. They're an integrated part of us. And we should not uh, uh, demean our bodies or dismiss them. No, no. They are a part of the totality of us created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There's no use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. He likes matter. He created it. Point three. We are created in two varieties, male and female. I need to start by pointing out what that doesn't say. It does not say 
that men are self-controlled and women are emotional. It does not say that men like football and women like romantic novels. It does not say that men repair cars and women do the washing up. In fact, the Bible as a whole says remarkably little about gender emotions, gender preferences, or gender roles. And we need to be very careful that we do not confuse stereotypes and culturally produced practices for the divinely endorsed norms. Our authority is the Bible, not our culture. And we need to remember the meaning of the expression, do not go beyond what is written. That said, the Bible does say that human beings are binary in nature. We are created male and female, and that the distinction is based on biology. Of course, I'm aware that in recent years, some people have suggested that the existence of intersex conditions disproves the binary nature of people. I'm conscious that there may be people either here today or or watching online uh, who themselves suffer from intersex conditions, and I don't have time to talk about those in detail, so I'm going to confine myself simply to one point, And, and it's this. As Andrew Bunt said when talking here on Thursday evening, in 99% of intersex cases, the sex of the person isn't actually uh, in doubt. The term intersex is a misnomer. The person is either male or female without doubt, but they have an unfortunate uh, defect in relation to their physiology. And in the 1% of cases, the person is not some third sex, but what they have is features of both sexes uh, in them. So this doesn't disprove the binary nature of human beings. No, we were created male and female. And then point four, we were created for a purpose. Did you notice in our reading, then God said, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. We were created with a view to being God's stewards, with a view to being his delegates ruling over creation. And that implies huge responsibility. We're accountable to God for our stewardship. Of course, the Bible says an awful lot more about our purpose. But for today, the critical point is simply that we have a God-given purpose. And incidentally, that purpose encompasses our bodies. Do you remember that when Paul is talking about us, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So there are the four points, and we need to think about how we respond to them. However, before we do that, there are two other points that don't come from our readings that it's important to bear in mind. And the first, or perhaps you might think the fifth point, is this. We are all impacted by human rebellion against God. (laughs) 
As I'm sure that most of you are aware, if we were to read on two chapters in Genesis, we would hear about that human rebellion. And the rest of the Bible tells us a lot about its consequences. It impacts us in two ways. First of all, all of us do wrong in thought and word and deed, as our confession says. As the Apostle Paul puts it, in our natural state, we are slaves to sin. But then, uh, we're also impacted by the broader consequences of sin in the world. Indeed, the Bible tells us that our very natures are corrupted by sin. And one of the consequences of that is that no one should suggest that what exists is evidence of what is right. It's a fundamental tenet of moral philosophy that you cannot derive a normative statement from an indicative, a factual statement. Or or to put it rather more simply, you can't get an ought from an is. Uh, That's why, incidentally, that science can never tell us what is right. For example, uh, many human beings are naturally aggressive, but that doesn't mean it's right to be aggressive. And coming closer to the subject of this sermon series, human beings doubtless desire a whole range of sexual experience and relationships, but that doesn't mean that those desires are right or that they should be fulfilled. Final point. If we repent and trust in Jesus, then we become a new creation. Fortunately, as I hope you're aware, God hasn't finished with us. If we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, then God not only forgives us, but gives us new birth. To use Jesus' expression, we are born again, born of the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul puts it, we become a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to us to free us from that slavery to sin and to begin to transform us. So if you're a Christian here today, you're not only made in the image of God, But again, to quote the Apostle Paul, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation in Christ. Furthermore, God plans to undo the consequences of human rebellion, to restore the world to the perfect condition he intended. And that includes us, and it includes our bodies. Philippians 3.20 the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, how should we respond to all of that? I suggest the answer to that question has two parts. One negative, one positive. The negative point is this. We mustn't contradict God. We need to accept the God-given realities about ourselves. The Bible contains many warnings about not doing so. This comes from Isaiah chapter 45. 
Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? We mustn't say, I will create my own identity. God is the potter. God created, created us. God says what we are. And we mustn't say, my body's not the real me. God doesn't make mistakes. Now, I know that for many of us, this will be easy. But for some of us, it won't. What about those who experience gender dysphoria? I know that most of us don't. But it can be absolutely devastating for those who do. We must not belittle it. We must seek to understand and get alongside those who do. Something has gone seriously wrong. There's no denying that. Nevertheless, there is an important question we need to ask. And it's this. What is it that has gone wrong? You see, the modern transgender movement suggests that the problem is with the body. In other words, those who suffer from gender dysphoria are suffering from a physical problem. But but wait a minute. What's the basis of that assertion? The basis is that the real us is our minds, our mental states define us. And as we've seen, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, Furthermore, if you suffer from gender dysphoria, there's nothing wrong with your body. It's not as though you've been born without an arm or a leg. Your your body is, is fine, and that strongly suggests the issue is a mental, not a physiological one. Now, I need to be very careful. I am not saying that people who suffer from gender dysphoria are sinning or that they should just snap out of it. In most cases, they aren't and they can't, and it's unhelpful and very distressing to suggest otherwise. We shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is that all of our minds are impacted by sin, by the the fall, without exception. The, the, The fall was originally a mental thing, not a physical one, though it impacted the physical world. And when St. Paul is talking about our transformation, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This issue is not about our bodies, it's about our minds. We must not say, I have the wrong body. Furthermore, we must not behave in a manner that denies how God has created us. That, that point underlines a number, underlies a number of things that the Bible says. For example, it underlies what it says about cross-dressing. This is Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman must not wear man's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. 
Note, that doesn't say what men's and women's clothing is. That's culturally determined. What it's saying is, we must not dress in a manner that in the context of our culture identifies us with the opposite sex. And the same principle is one of the things that underlies the Bible's prohibition on same-sex sexual relations. Take a look at Romans chapter 1. So that's the negative. We mustn't contradict God. What's the positive? The positive is that we should embrace the God-given realities about ourselves. Pursue the God-given purpose we have, and we should support one another in doing so. Uh, Modern secular thinking uh, variously encourages us either to define ourselves by reference to our feelings and desires, or by an act of will to create an identity for ourselves. But that's doomed to failure. Because our feelings and desires are shifting sands. They provide no anchor. And an identity created uh, by ourselves will have no value because it has no objective reality. Furthermore, uh, those who advocate this approach deny the concept of any objective purpose in our lives. So this can't bring fulfilment because there's no objective purpose to fulfill. And it places a burden on us that is absolutely crushing because it all depends on us. This is what the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Paradoxically, we're told to be ourselves And then we are abandoned to struggle to make something of ourselves, whilst at the same time we're denied any objective measure of value. It's deeply depressing, isn't it? Depressing, but untrue. Because we can relax. We don't need to make anything of ourselves. We're created in the image of God. We are hugely valued by God. Oh, marred by sin, yes, but still loved by God. Every one of us, without exception. God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we can be redeemed and that ultimately along with the whole of creation, we can be perfectly restored in Jesus. Body and soul, male and female. And in the meantime, we should pursue the purpose for which we were created, our God-given purpose. The Bible stresses that that will involve struggles, internal and external. And there's no denying that for some, those struggles will be greater than for others. But but we all have the Holy Spirit within us to comfort and work in us. And if we embrace the God-given realities 
about us, then the struggle will be worthwhile. Because we won't be struggling against God. We will be working with him. The Apostle Paul faced many struggles in his life, more than I suspect most of us will ever face. And he wrote this. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Whatever the world says, let us embrace the God-given realities about ourselves. And let us pursue the God-given purpose that we have. And as we do that, let us seek to understand and support one another. And especially to understand and support those who struggle with issues of sexuality and of gender. Like Jesus, let's be full of grace and truth. Amen.